Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today we discuss technical diagramming with systems architect Maya. Let's go. First question. You've spent 10 hours slogging over a sequence diagram that should have taken five. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board. And if I'm being honest, Miro would probably cut that time down by half. You know, with its AI tools and ready-to-go templates. Next, your diagrams become so bulky, it's more complex than the solar system. But all it takes is a few clicks and... It's Miro. I've used those technical shape packs way too many times. And stuff is just digestible on its infinite online canvas. Now, the final question. Everyone's brought in. But you have to make all these tasks all the way over in Jira. But wait, it's done. Is it... Miro. Easy with its two-way Jira sync. Easy to plot dependencies. Everyone always knows what's up. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people creating technical diagrams without workflow glitches. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Center Court with Hall of Famer Ralph Sampson. I'm Jason Zone Fisher. Ralph, how you doing, man? The NBA playoffs are underway. It's been good. I'm excited that basketball is like the games really mean something now. Well, that's, a, you know, it's a blessing because the first number of games to me were just uh, exhibition type game. Then they got a little bit more serious. And I don't think they'll get real serious because now they have something to play for. Typically, when the playoffs start, you know, the bad teams are weeded out, they're home. And uh, now we still have some home that didn't make it to the bubble. And the, and the ones that are still there that should be there, shouldn't be there, will be out. And I think guys will start to focus more on the championship now. Well, 2020 has been a trying year for all of us. And just having these live sports back, I give a lot of credit to the NBA, all the work that went into making this bubble. Absolutely. Uh, the players who are there sacrificing uh, a lot to – uh, leave their families and their friends at home, and it's brought a lot of joy to millions of Americans and people really around the world. Something that you can turn on you and feel, even though it's different, feel some sort of sense of normalcy, which is what I'm craving for sure. Well, it's a new normal, and yeah. so it may not be as what we hope to be as far as they're going to their big arenas and all the fans, but at least shows you how powerful the NBA is. They have done an amazing job. Adam Silver and the crew has made, uh, exceeded expectations. There's not been any issues with COVID there. Uh, hopefully, God know that it won't be an issue there. But, you, I mean, I'm interested in, in, in seeing the fact that I went on the other day to see if I could get on to see it from a computer perspective, to see what that view looks like. Because mm -hmm. you see the fans in the back, and they sit in their home watching it from their device. So that technology is, you know, it's real. And I can't wait to see what they do to it after we get back to, you know, the arenas, because I think some of that technology will carry over. So it'll be fun to watch. It, yeah, you're right. It will be interesting to see one day when fans are finally back in the arenas, what what we learn from the bubble that might carry over into the NBA uh, beyond this uh, time period. 
Well, we have an incredible guest joining us today. Andy Bernstein is going to be with us in just a few minutes, and he's going to be headed down to the bubble in just a couple of days to photograph and document the NBA playoffs and the finals, just as he has for the previous 38 seasons. So we'll get into that in a second. But first, I got to know what's new, what's good with you, Ralph? Well, I mean, you know, still in the COVID world, but all is well, family is well, continue to be there. Everyone be safe and and happy out there. I know it's tough. It's going to get tougher as the year goes on. But amazing, one of my guys that I coached in the Phoenix Suns named P.J. Tucker, mm-hmm. one of the very toughest, hard-nosed players that I've ever been around. I mean, he can't make that corner three still, <laughs> but he can defend. He can just be the dog. He, he gets out there. He, he just goes at it. But when I call him, I'm going to tell him, why do you bring 110 pair of shoes to the bubble? I mean, how, how do you carry, you, you got to have like seven bags to be able to carry that many shoes in a bubble. He's going to use that many shoes or did he get rid of the shoes after a game? He can't throw them in the stands to the fans because there's no fans there. So what is he doing with all these shoes? That is a good question. He is the biggest sneakerhead in the NBA. Over a hundred pairs of shoes he brought biggest. to the bubble. I mean, I, I want to see what his hotel room looks like. I don't know. Is there room for him to walk? Uh, where is he p- keeping all these shoes? These aren't big rooms. you got to have storage somewhere downstairs, somewhere. I mean, I mean, a hotel room. I don't care what hotel there is. Unless you have a big suite, still can't put 110 pairs of tennis shoes in one room. It's impossible. Depending how far the the Rockets go in the playoffs this year, we'll see if he's even able to wear all 110 pairs. He may not be there 110 days. I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out. Yeah, do some research, Ralph. We need some investigative reporting on the P.J. Tucker shoe situation. P.J. Tucker, my guy. That's right. Well, I got something for you. You know that a couple years ago I became friendly with Jimmy Goldstein, who not everyone knows him by name, but you probably recognize him. He's an iconic NBA super fan, wears usually a big leather cowboy hat and very loud clothing he has courtside seats to the lakers and the clippers well he hasn't missed an nba finals or playoffs in the last 40 years normally during the playoffs he spends five to six hundred thousand dollars going to multiple games a day flying all over the country uh he'll be at you know the afternoon game in portland and then the evening game in houston and then the next day he'll be in memphis and he's all over the place well He's not allowed in the bubble, and uh, there was an article in the L.A. Times that he's he's doing his best to work on it because he is having a hard time. His life revolves around the NBA and not being there. This virtual fan thing is not the same for him, so something to keep an eye out. Well, I might have to call Jimmy. Maybe we can watch a game with him or something. Well, we need to give him a call and make sure he's uh, okay because I'm sure he wants to be there. Amazing about him, though, is like you said, he, he he's a Laker fan. He's not a Laker fan, actually. He it's likes the underdog. He goes to Lakers games, but he roots against them. He likes the underdog to come to the Lakers. So everybody would think, because he's yeah. always got these flamboyant hats and jackets on, right? So we would assume, I guess, I would always assume he was a Laker fan, but he goes to every, like he said, city to city. Big game in the afternoon, he takes a private plan to get a game at night. I mean... You gotta love the game of basketball if you're doing all that. And gotta have a little bit of money as well. Yes, he he does have the money to afford that lifestyle, but he has dedicated his entire life to being a fan 
of the big, NBA he's probably basketball. the biggest fan. He's probably the biggest fan. Uh, he is. I think he's the biggest fan maybe in NBA basketball history. He's an interesting guy. Uh, and you know, we may have him on the podcast. We've You and I have spent some time with him uh, at his incredible mansion in L.A. Yes. We watched some games together. He's uh, he's an interesting character. And uh, interesting. maybe we'll watch a, a playoff game with him because he can't be there in person. See what that experience is like. We have an amazing guest, so I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get right to it. Andy Bernstein, he's one of the most iconic sports photographers of all time. He's currently in his 38th season photographing the NBA. He's covered every NBA final since 1983. He's the team photographer for the LA Lakers, the LA Clippers, the LA Kings NHL team, the Dodgers. I mean, you talk about LA sports history. He has been there for every moment. He's also also co-authored the 2010 book Journey to the Ring with Phil Jackson with all of his photos documenting one of the Lakers championship runs. And he collaborated with Kobe Bryant in 2018 on the Mamba mentality. We'll talk to him about that as well. His very special relationship they had with Kobe covering his entire 20-year career with LA and then collaborating with him on this book. Uh, he also was the recipient of the Kurt Gowdy Media Award by the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall yeah. of Fame, only the second photographer ever to receive that prestigious honor. Magic Johnson once said of Andy, he is one of the guys who created the image of the NBA. The things that he has seen and witnessed, uh, been a fly on the wall for, and his photos, which will live on forever, capturing these iconic moments in sports and NBA history, uh, are, are truly legendary. So I'm excited to bring him on. He's got some great stories to tell. Ralph, uh, I, I know you had a chance of being a guest on his podcast recently as well. I did. I had a chance to be on his podcast, and the stories he has are amazing. Uh, the photos and the history. I mean, he took a picture of myself and Kim Olajuwon years ago that we'll hopefully we'll talk about. But uh, very interesting to see it from a different perspective. And everybody that's listening is going to be amazed with this interview. All right, well, let's throw the ball up at center court and bring him on, the legendary Andy Bernstein. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on Center Court. Uh, we really appreciate it. And you're about to leave for the bubble in a few days. So just giving us a little bit of your time before you leave civilization to enter this new world that we appreciate it even more well it's my pleasure it's so great to reconnect with you jason and ralph great to see you man um a lot of great memories photographing you during the day yeah uh, behind the camera so i'm sure it was pretty interesting like to hear those <laughs> stories for sure that's yeah, right for sure we'll get into all of that i mean you've spent an incredible career behind the lens and now also behind the microphone with legends of sport your own podcast so today we're gonna turn the tables on you a little bit and have mm -hmm. you be the subject uh and and really dive deep into your incredible career covering mm -hmm. the nba L.A. sports, really, I mean, you think of so many historic moments in professional sports, basketball, anything that's happened in Los Angeles, and, and you were there to witness it and document it. And it's uh, mm. really a remarkable uh, journey and career that I can't wait to dig in a little deeper. But let's, let's start from the very beginning. I know you're originally from Brooklyn, and you were a sports fan growing up. Do you remember when you first fell in love with photography? Oh, yeah, for sure. I remember like it was yesterday. My dad bought me a camera when I was 14, and uh, my 14th birthday was in April. And that summer, he and I took a trip 
to the Western United States to almost all the national parks. We started in Calgary, Alberta, and drove all the way to Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. and then all the way up the West Coast, and ended up in Vancouver. And this wow. Was like- wow two and a half, three week trip, gave me this camera, which of course was all manual back then. And, mm-hmm. and my dad was a, was a doctor, but he was, he considered himself like an amateur, everything. And photographer was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he showed me, you know, the basics, but um, I just fell in love with the connection that I had to the camera that, mm-hmm. um, that I could see something in my eye and then express it through the camera, which was amazing. And that uh, really was magnified when I got back home and I started, I believe it was the 10th grade and a good friend of mine had a dark room in his basement and um, showed me how to process film. And then most importantly, how to make prints in, in uh, these trays, you know, in the dark room with the orange light and the whole thing. And I remember it. I mean, I can picture in my mind's eye seeing that very first print come up. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that, but you know, this blank piece of paper, in a solution. And then mm-hmm. within 30 seconds, an image starts coming up. And it was, it was to me a magic trick. Honestly, it was, this was unbelievable. This is something that I thought about in my head was translated and transcribed through the camera. And then here it is right in front of me. It was, it was an amazing revelation, quite frankly. Wow. And you were hooked. You were hooked. Yeah, right? that was, that was it. Then I had a camera around my neck every single day in high school. I mean, that was the joke yeah. that, you know, did, did, did Andy take a shower with his camera? You know, like, <laughs> I literally had a camera every single day. And my mom used to joke about it because when I was, when I was a toddler, I, I was a Superman fan <laughs> and I never took my Superman costume off. You know, like she, she, literally there's stories of having to give me a bath in my Superman costume <laughs> and, and sew it up while it was on me, you know? So this was like, <laughs> it was the next level of that with the camera because I, I just loved and lived with that camera. It was terrific. It's, it's funny because uh, one, one of the years that I was in college, I stayed in Coach Holland's and Mrs. Holland's basement because of the, unbeknownst to me, things that was happening around UVA and basketball that they never told me until after the fact. Mm. But she had a dark room in the basement. So right. I got to see that process emerge from pictures she would take on the sidelines of my college games, mm. then bring them home and put them in those trays. And... Some of the worst smelling stuff I ever could imagine, but uh, it was interesting to see how the pictures came out. So I do remember a little bit of that. Yeah. You know, Great it's funny, story. When, I, when I was in college, Ralph, um, I, ha- I ended up getting in my sophomore year, I got a single room, which was probably like, I don't know, like 40 square feet. It was the tiniest mm-hmm. room imaginable. But um, I literally put a, a dark room in my dorm room. And oh, wow. I drilled, it's probably still there. I drilled a hole in the door so I could run a hose to the laundry room down the hall so I could have running water. <laughs> I wow. blacked out I blacked out all the windows because like one whole side of my room were windows that faced the quad. And there I was in the middle of the night. And, and then I had to put plastic over my bed with a clothesline and clothespins to hang the, the prints to dry over my bed. You know, I mean, no, it was, wow. yeah, it was, I was not very popular in the <laughs> 80s because you know, it stunk, <laughs> but it was, 
but it was it was a good use of space, I think. <laughs> well, it's clear you were obsessed with photography. And when did you mm -hmm. realize that you could turn this passion into a career? Yeah, great question, Jason. While I was at, at UMass is where I went to college and did um, started my undergrad there. I, I was working for our daily paper, which was, was a very prestigious paper. You know, a big university like yours, Ralph. You know, we, we had a daily newspaper and mm -hmm. I within the first two weeks of my freshman year, they made me assistant photo editor because no one else wanted to do it, quite frankly. <laughs> but I saw that there was, I didn't think of it as a career per se, but I, I learned like the sort of the business of doing assignments and giving out assignments and, and having to work on deadline, having to work with a writer, um, doing research, um, you know, all that stuff. And that really whet my appetite Except, our, um, I'm sorry, UMass didn't have any photo classes. Like, I wasn't learning right. the science of photography. I wasn't learning about light and and all the stuff I needed to know, the history of photography. So I had to make a tough decision between my sophomore and junior year that I was going to apply to this school in, in L.A., which to me was like, you know, the, the other side of the world, quite frankly, mm -hmm. um, called Art Center College of Design, which was a very, um, and still is, pretty, pretty much the top um, – commercial art school in the country, um, got out there uh, in the middle of uh, the winter in 78 um, and started, I was 19 years old and I was the youngest guy in my class. And I soon learned that I was, I was like the black sheep of my class because what I wanted to do with, with photojournalism, I didn't really know if I wanted to be a sports photographer per se, but wanted to be a photojournalist. That was completely frowned upon. It was like, mm. you should never have come here. I mean, yeah. I had teachers telling me like, why are you at this school? I mean, we, we churn out uh, advertising photographers and fashion photographers. You know, it's like, Ralph, if you ended up going to UVA for basketball, but you know, they just played football there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, makes no sense. Makes but no sense, I had yeah. two teachers, honestly, that believed in me that became mentors of mine. And this is now 40 plus years and they still are mentors and friends of mine. Oh, wow. Um, I call on them all the time and they pushed me. They, they saw something in me that, um, you know, maybe I didn't see in myself, but they saw that I had a, a lot of drive and ambition and passion and obsession, like you said. And one of my teachers introduced me to, um, to a sports illustrated photographer and I started working for him. I started, um, really seeing that this could be a career. I mean, that this, mm -hmm. this was a bona fide business, you know? So fast forward, I went into my final portfolio review before graduation, before the last term. And I had to sit with, with the old school chairman of the department. This guy, Charlie Potts, was a contemporary of Ansel Adams. I mean, he had built wow. this department, um, very respected guy. You know, the, the famous picture of the Japanese surrendering on the battleship at the end of World War II, he took that picture, you know? Wow. So this is like, and he, just, he said, well, these are nice pictures, but uh, I hope you have something to fall back on because you're never going to make <laughs> a living doing this. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, I think I might try to prove you wrong. You know, I'm, I'm a Brooklyn guy, so you tell me I can't do something; it's uh -huh. just going to fuel it. Um, and lo and behold, you know, I was able to start a career, and really good things happened. I was in the right place at the right time in the early '80s. Showtime was taken off. Um, I got the Dodgers team photographer job in 84, which was an amazing accomplishment right at the beginning of my career. Wow. For 11 years. 
fact, is last time they won the World Series, I was working for them. So <laughs> yeah. that was interesting. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and very fortunate to be in L.A. when the NBA was literally exploding around me. Um, so it was, uh, you know, it was a good move. Uh, yeah. It was a risky move to make. But um, sometimes you just got to sometimes you have to roll the dice and and have mm -hmm. faith that what you're going to do is going to pay off. Did you did you run across Terry Kirkpatrick at Sports Illustrated? I'm sure you did. I mean, he was a good friend of mine and he always did some great stuff. Yeah, not directly. I mean, his work is amazing. And uh, <clears throat> I work with some great writers there. Um, however, the photographers and writers didn't really cross paths that much. I mean, the guy that I worked Close, most closely with Ralph was Jack McCallum, who was the NBA beat writer for right. years and still a great mm -hmm. friend and amazing writer. I went through the whole dream team experience with with Jack and uh, some some great people. Um, incredible. And it's, it's very sad for me to see what's happened to Sports Illustrated. The fact right, that it's right. it's really on its last legs right now. And it's, mm -hmm. it's really a shame. Yeah, it's a great publication. I was on it six, seven times on the cover. And every time I came on, they were like, you know, the cover or you used to be in the back of the book in a little blurb. Yeah. Yeah. You had quite a run, though. And I was doing my research for my chat with you. The, that was pretty incredible. You were on the cover like, I think, six times in like a two year period or something. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to get all the covers. I don't have them. I guess you can order them offline. I need to get them, see what they all are. I, yeah. People send stuff to our office all the time to sign, but I need to go ahead and get those. But mm -hmm. yeah. You know, yeah. It was special to be on Sports Illustrated. Well, I tell you, that was 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 one of my benchmark um, early career goals as a photographer, sports photographer, was to get the cover of Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. Well, first it was to ha actually be it, have a photo in Sports Illustrated, and I got my first assignment. It was actually an L.A. Kings assignment. Um, you guys might remember a player named Bernie Nichols, and Bernie, a very flamboyant player. And he did this thing was called, when he scored a goal, he did this thing like this called the pumpernickel, right? <laughs> that was the story. So I had to, I had to shoot a couple of games and wait till, you know, he did the he pumpernickel and luckily I got a picture of it. And it was so thrilling to get a picture in Sports Illustrated. And that was around 80, around 83, 84. And then I was so fortunate to get my first cover, which was which was an historic moment in NBA history. It was when the Lakers beat the Celtics in 85 in Boston Garden. No team had ever beaten the Celtics in Boston Garden for the finals. The Lakers, as we know, the history, uh, Jerry West, poor Jerry, lost six times to the Celtics, you know. <laughs> yes. So I, was, I got that cover and it changed. It really changed my life. Um, I felt like I really belonged. I felt like. I was part of this fraternity. Like they could never take that cover away from me. Like my photo credit will be on that cover yeah. forever. So it, it, it affirmed all the hard work and all the disappointment and all the anxiety that I had. Like, did I make the right decision in this career? Um, because I felt like, honestly, like I had arrived at that point. Now, what, what was that picture? Because you got magic, you know, Kareem wouldn't play and had a headache. And yeah, that course, of the, like I said, the NBA was exploding, right? And yes. In the 80s, yeah. it was always the Lakers and the Celtics. You yeah. Know, everybody was battling every year. So, yeah. Picture, describe how, I mean, you probably had thousands of pictures during that game, but that one picture was special. Yeah. Well, what happened, Ralph, was that Sports Illustrated would always send two photographers to cover every NBA Finals game. One photographer would be on one end of the court, the other would be on the other. But then they would also what they called pick up. They would they would take my film 
or Nat Butler's film or some other NBA photographer who was at that game. It could be a conference final or finals. And honestly, as a courtesy, they would they would take our film. So at the end of the game, with their photographer's film, my film would go into a big envelope and would be flown to New York. Um, sometimes they'd have to Learjet it, depending on when the game was and their deadline was. Um, or somebody would hand carry it to New York from L.A. or Boston or whatever on, on an airplane to the SI um, Time Life lab in New York. Right. Wow. So I never saw the film. I never you know, I gave them the, the, the rolls of film in a bag, you know, wow. <laughs> and uh, the Lakers win the championship in Boston we stay overnight, um, partied all night long at the hotel in Boston, got on a plane at eight o'clock in the morning, <laughs> right? Everybody either didn't sleep or was incredibly hungover. And we didn't fly back to LA. We went to Washington. Right. So we go, we're going to Washington to, to meet the president, which is never done now. Right. right. It's done, you know, a year later when the team is going through Washington. You know? Yeah. And on the way to L.A., we stop in Washington. Wow. And I'm sitting in in the waiting room area, um, you know, to get on the plane, the boarding area. And I had a pager. Right. The pager goes off and it's an SI number. I recognize the number. And uh I, I call the editor and she says, um, are you sitting down? I said, no, I'm actually standing up because I'm at a payphone." You know, <laughs> <laughs> she said, well, um, you got the cover this week, you know, and, and, and Manny Milan, the legendary photographer, uh, I think John Beaver. I mean, these are like the icons of sports photography. Mm -hmm. We're shooting for SI and, you know, I get the cover and I was like out of my mind. I mean, wow. it was just. I mean, I, it, the whole rest of the day was a blur. You know, we get on the plane, we go see the president. We're out in the Rose Garden. You know, we fly to L.A. There's all this craziness once we get to LAX. But the, the rest of the day was just a blur because I was so excited. And That's so that incredible. was. Yeah. So that was, I think, I want to say it's possible that that could have been on a Sunday or, or Monday. The magazine comes out on Tuesday. And there's a newsstand in L.A., Jason, you probably know, that's still there on Cahuenga and Hollywood Boulevard. Mm -hmm. World News has every magazine and newspaper that's published in the world. Yeah. And I am literally there at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> waiting for the, the truck to come to dump the Sports Illustrated. So I bought like 50 copies. I bought like the whole stack. Wow. You know, it, was, it was the most exciting moment. It really was the most exciting moment in my photography career. That's incredible. I mean, there you are with the team celebrating yeah. and yeah. you're celebrating your own uh, career yeah. achievement at that moment while they're celebrating. And at the White House, I mean, that's a storybook situation. That's really amazing. I, I just want to know, did you, did you take the, the, the bottom books and did you autograph them to give them away? <laughs> <laughs> I did. And I, I sent them to family and stuff. Oh, yeah. um, I still have a whole bunch of them here in my office. Um, we've scanned them and I have them, you know, hermetically sealed up. But the funny <laughs> thing, Ralph, you, you'll love this story, is that um, as soon as I find out, right, I, I have to tell somebody. I hang up with Eileen Miller, the editor, and I got to tell somebody. And the first person I see is Kareem. And the picture <laughs> is of Kareem. No, right? yeah. So it was, a, it was a very unusual picture. I was sitting up the, the sideline, which we never do anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Danny Ainge is in there. And it wasn't a sky hook. It was Kareem making this kind of weird move, quite frankly. It mm -hmm. was not a picture you see every day. 
Um, and maybe that's why they liked it. And I, <laughs> I went up to Kareem and I, I was like gushing. And <laughs> I'm so excited. And he just looked at me and goes, that's nice, kid. Because <laughs> 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 he's had like 50 covers by that point. Right, like it could right. mean absolutely nothing to him. You know? <laughs> Go off. And Go it's off. Quite, as quiet as he is, it's probably going to say much anyway. So. Right. Yeah. Well, Andy, you've but, taken so many iconic shots over the years. That was an amazing story of one of your first iconic shots and moments in your career. But covering the Showtime Lakers to Michael Jordan and the Bulls, all mm -hmm. of those runs. I mean, you've covered every NBA Finals since 1983, then to the Kobe and Shaq years, uh, mm -hmm. and now today with the, the LeBron era. When you think back on your career, is there one photo that stands out amongst all of the hundreds of thousands of photos you've taken that is maybe your mm -hmm. favorite or, or most iconic shot. Yeah. I mean, I get that. I get asked that a lot, I'm Jason, sure. and it's a tough one. You know, I always say I got four kids in any given day. One of them is my favorite over the other, but it's <laughs> <laughs> a whole other scenario, yeah. but, um, and but that's the next question. The follow up yeah. Who's your favorite child today. Yeah. Right. I could tell you actually. Oh, okay. Right. Um, <laughs> You know, people point to my my photo of, of Michael Jordan holding the trophy, the first championship in '91, with his dad next to him, and he's just so emotional. And to me, that's that's got to be, you know, if I'm remembered for one picture mm -hmm. in my career, that probably should be it. Um, it was just such a historic moment in time. I mean, even in the even at the moment, it was an important moment because you know, seven years it took him to get there. He was just letting it all out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, having his dad next to him, even though obviously we didn't know what was going to happen with his dad a couple of years later, but I knew of his relationship with his dad and how important his dad was in his life. And it was just a, a poignant moment. It's a moment in sports that you rarely see an athlete just let loose like that. You know? Yeah. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment. Um, and it's kind of taken on a life of itself, quite frankly. Yeah. And then, you know, the bird and magic sort of intertwined mm -hmm. sort of in one body almost. Um, David Stern always pointed to that photo as kind of helping to define that era, the mm -hmm. Lakers Celtic era. Um, so many shots with and photos I've done with Kobe over the years. Of course. Um, but I think that one, the, the Jordan one has probably got to be, you know, 1A, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you can sense the, the Kobe moments, obviously, but the Michael and his dad moments after the passing of his father, right? That's mm -hmm. what you're kind of alluding to. Yeah. And it took him seven years to get there, right? So, yeah. you know, I, I want people to understand because not typically, and it had evolved in your career, photographers in the locker room, you know, mm -hmm. to on the court to today, it had evolved in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. So when you took photos of Michael and, and, and Magic in the 80s, the structure mm -hmm. was different. I want to know how that structure had evolved over now four, four generations, almost of NBA players. Yeah. Because some people wasn't allowed. I and mean, we only had two reporters and a photographer, right? <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> now you got social media and multiple yeah. photographers. So you've seen it all. Yeah. So how'd you really get in the locker room, you know, to take that picture? And mm -hmm. how has things evolved over the years? Well, um, that particular moment, Ralph, uh, has stayed the same. You know, when, when a team wins a championship, I'm usually, myself or Nat Butler or both of us are usually, the, are always the first ones in the championship locker room um, to the point where we've, we've divided it up that 
<clears throat> one of one of us stays on the court and gets all the hoopla going on because now they do the trophy presentation on the court. Right. Um, and back in the day, as you remember, they did the the uh, trophy presentation in the locker room, yes. whether yes. it was the visiting locker room, God forbid, which is at the forum, which was like a closet <laughs> or, you know, the winning locker room. And in that particular sense uh, moment, it was the visiting locker room at the forum and they built a uh, impromptu set, you know, they go on live TV. I think it was CBS. And um, so, you know, I get all the hoopla on the court, then I'm racing through the crowd to get to, and you remember that tunnels going to the yeah, locker yeah. room, Ralph was just, you know, really jammed up and tiny. And, uh, you know, I get in the locker room and all hell's breaking loose, you know, champagne flying everywhere. Um, and that's still the case. I mean, that, you know, now we kind of divide it up. One of us stays um, on the court to get the trophy presentation. And then there's sort of an impromptu team photo that's done on the court. Uh, then there's interviews on the court. The MVP stays on the court you know, a long time doing TV interviews. And then one of us is in the locker room kind of, you know, getting ready pretty much. I mean, they don't pop the champagne usually until the MVP comes in. So the guys are just poised and ready. So one of us has to be in there. You know, you can't, there's no way you're going to get in there after the guy comes in. Cause it's just, no, it's just, yeah, it's just right. bedlam at that point. So Anyway, that hasn't changed. But what has changed, like you said, Ralph, the number of people um, involved, it's just, you know, social media, all the teams now have their social media teams, not a person, it's a team mm -hmm. video still. Um, the number of media outlets have just, you know, climbed astronomically. Um, but what I do and what we do at NBA Photos really has remained the same. And um, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I've been in, you know, 37 championship locker rooms. I was, I was the first guy into all 11 of Phil Jackson's championship locker rooms. Wow. Um, and that's how Phil and I kind of bonded after like the second one, when he, he knew that I, you know, wasn't going to go away. <laughs> he, finally, <laughs> he, finally, he finally kind of welcomed to be in, you know, and that, that helped me in LA when he started winning rings in LA. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a different world for sure. Um, I, you know, I complain about the fact that they used to do the trophy presentation in the locker room, but I kind of miss that. It was kind of mm. quaint if you think about it. The intimacy of that. Yeah, and that's kind of how the Jordan photo happened. I don't know mm -hmm. if you guys know, but, you know, they, they did a live trophy presentation in the locker room. The whole team was up on this impromptu stage. It wasn't even a stage. It was like two by fours, you know. <laughs> and the, the locker room is completely packed. Right. So the only vantage point I could get is I jumped up on a bridge table, the one that's right. always in the middle of the locker room, Ralph, where they got the tickets and the gum, you know, and all that right, stuff. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I jump on up on there so I could see. Right. And I shoot the trophy presentation. The network goes to commercial. Right. And they're going to come back from like a 60 second commercial and they're going to do a one on one with Michael, of course, the MVP. Nobody could find Michael. <laughs> like Michael has like disappeared. It, like you know, David Copperfield trick, like, <laughs> boom, he's gone. Yeah. And PAs and people, producers are going out of their mind. Like we need we go live over here. Yeah. Where's Michael? And I, I don't know, something in my head said, look to your left. And I looked to my left and he was, there he was. He was in this locker six feet away from me, maybe even closer with his dad, with the trophy, had that huh. moment. And then somebody just like grabbed him. And that was the end of that. 
Uh, how well, how much of, of being a great <laughs> photographer is that sixth sense of just sort of knowing how to put yourself in the right place at the right time? I'm sure some of that is luck, but over the course of your career, it's not luck when you do it time and time again. So mm-hmm. how do you describe that, just sort of knowing where to be, where to look, where to find that moment? Well, you know, it, it's all about preparation, you mm-hmm. know. I'm sure when Ralph played, you know, he just didn't show up at the gym and start playing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it started early in the morning. It started with his routine. It started with when he gets to the arena, the conditioning, taping, warming up, stretching, you know, all that stuff that an mm-hmm. athlete does. We do the same thing. You know, I, I prepare myself for a game by really reading it. First thing I do in the morning, I read you know, the preview of what's coming up. And I think about games that I've shot, you know, Russell Westbrook is in town. I think about his game. I think about Steph Curry. I think about matchups that might be coming up. Um, And, you know, if it's a, if it's a really huge game, like, you know, right now, Lakers Clippers, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, my juices get flowing pretty early in the morning for that, you know? Um, And, it's a, a lot of my work, quite frankly, is is anticipation. It's from experience. I learned that with magic very early in my career that I could never guess what we what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I was wrong a lot, but I had to learn his game, which was really hard. Yeah. When he's coming down full steam and he's got Worthy on one side, he's got Coop on the other side. Kareem's trailing. He could do nineteen things with the ball in, in a millisecond. So I had to learn to be patient most. Mm-hmm. Notably, I just had to wait that extra millisecond for something to happen, you know, to get that no look pass or 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 he would fake and then go to the hoop, you know, something like that. Sure. Um, Kareem was 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 a great testament of that, because to, in order to get the perfect shot, the perfect photo of the great skyhook, mm-hmm. you had to be very patient to get it at the absolute apex right um because i don't have the luxury of a motor drive you know i can't shoot 12 frames in a second and pick one out because what i do depends on these giant strobe units these big flashes going off Mm -hmm. in the ceiling and then four seconds to recycle up so i can only take a picture every four seconds and walter yost the great walter yost who you know one of the photographers on the Mount Rushmore of sports photography, mm-hmm. you know, said uh, and stuck with me my whole career that that luck benefits the most prepared, you know, and, you know, we we are very we try to be prepared. We as sports photographers and you have to have a little sixth sense. Like you said, you have to be have a little teeny bit of ESP. Yeah, it's just to kind of and that comes from experience mm-hmm. also. You know, when Ralph and Nakeem played together, for example. Well, it's amazing to hear you say you, you became game ready. Yeah. No, it's true. And I, I and, and the other thing about me is, and the reputation I've had, quite honestly, is that I'm very aloof when I work. Yeah. I don't talk to people. Mm-hmm. I don't talk to the other photographers. I don't kibitz with the video guy. I don't talk to the fans behind me. Yeah. I just work, you know, yeah. and people took that as arrogant. Or I don't care. I mean, that, that's yeah. how I was locked in. Right. And, um, you know, some players like to trash talk. Some players don't. They, mm-hmm. you know, they just do what they do. But I was going to talk about Akeem and Ralph, you know, and and the challenge of getting both of these guys in the same frame. Right. In that moment. And I there's one picture I took, which um, hopefully you guys have seen and Ralph has seen it. But both of you guys are going up at the same time to block magic. 
I don't know if you remember that. And it was a down court picture. It was on the other side of the court. But truly, like the the if you're going to put the twin towers in the dictionary of sports photography, that was the picture. Yeah, <laughs> it had to have both of you guys at the apex, at the absolute. And Magic looks like you know looks like a little kid in that picture, right. quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm sure we both were jumping out of the gym trying to block his shot because we we played it. I mean, to hear you say you got game ready, it became crazy. And then so, yeah. I, I mean, we got game ready to play the Lakers every time we played them because we always wanted to block Kareem Scott. <laughs> so yeah. we, had a, we had a concept to do that. So King would play against him and then I would come from the weak side and try to block the hook. But to understand, Jason, as you see, the photographer being game ready, mm-hmm. And being mentally focused to, to, you know, not talk to everybody else, whatever. I mean, you had your pregame meal probably three hours before the game, in four hours before the game, like we we would do, right? You get yeah. there in the game ready. So you see how accomplished, you know, Andy is, you know, when it comes down to his skill. Because if you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be who you are. So it's interesting for me to hear that as a player, mm-hmm. how you prepared yourself for the game. Because you can expect when we play the Lakers, it's going to be something that's got to happen. Mm. You know, back then the Lakers could play the Clippers, but you wouldn't mm. expect anything to happen. But you might get one or two good shots out of that game. But yeah. our games, you probably would have gotten more. But it's interesting to hear that from that perspective. I never heard that, so I appreciate your comments with that. Yeah. Well, you know, I also had a high um, expectation of myself. You know, I never wanted to leave a game thinking, you know, I just kind of mailed it in or mm-hmm. wasn't wasn't really into it. I, there's never been a game I haven't been into it. Um, you know, there's been games I've been tired. There's been games where I, you know, my back was killing me from sitting on the floor. I, mm. I had back surgery at one point. I had to work my way back onto the court after being off the court for about two months. Um, you know, it takes a lot out of you, the traveling. I mean, the setup that we do every game starts at basically 12 or one o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, by the time it's game time, you're talking six hours later, we still have a game to play. And we still have to break down after the game and probably have an early flight the next day if we're on the road, you know. So it's the same routine every single game. Luckily, at Staples Center, I have two two teams who play there. All my equipment can stay in Staples Center, but has to be broken down between one game to the next because, you know, we have multiple teams playing there. Sure. I feel sorry for you when they had the back to back to back. They had the three games in, you know, four nights. Uh, oh, yeah. Those days. Yeah, I do. But at least, you know, and it wasn't like you guys had a travel commercial. Yeah. I mean, Jerry West talked about that, about playing cards till four or five in the morning, mm-hmm. taking a sh- quick shower and then getting on a bus to go to the airport to take a commercial flight to play in another city that same night you know, yep. and doing it three nights in a row. It's crazy. Wow. I don't know how teams did that back, back then in those days. Yeah, we wouldn't get any sleep because we'd be so hyped up after the game. Right, yeah. right. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah. So, a lot of similarities between you and the athletes you cover in the routine and the preparation and the time that goes into it. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder, you learned how to be a fly on the wall, just like a great documentarian, really to – so many behind the scenes moments, private moments uh, that you just try to maintain your distance and be respectful. But have you ever been conflicted about getting a shot or being there for a moment? And you know, this is a moment that you would love to capture, but but should you? Have you ever felt that that conflict? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it, it's, it's important to understand that I'm working for the league. I'm working for the teams. 
So I'm not in the business of gotcha moments or making guys look um, in a compromising situation or whatever. Um, and it took me a long time to build trust mm -hmm. with Respect. primarily the Laker organization who was around the most and then the Clippers, but especially the NBA. And, uh, you know, I, I built that over a period of time, you know, starting with Pat Riley and, of course, Jerry West, Mitch, Mitch Kupchak, um, uh, Dr. Buss, you know, Jeannie. And I didn't want to screw that up, <laughs> obviously. Mm, yeah. So I knew that I had to always be very discreet and get, get in, get out, have a sixth sense of when not to be in the locker room. Mm -hmm. You know, with Phil Jackson, I always knew when Phil didn't want me in the locker room. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, he just had, he either give you that sideways look or, or I would just feel it like it's your dad, you know, it's like, okay, I'm not coming in here. <laughs> but there was a moment, Jason, yes, the, um, that it comes to mind, uh, the Pistons beat the Lakers I'm thinking it's 88 or 89. Mm -hmm. I think it's 89. They beat the Lakers uh, at the forum to win the championship. That was the year that Isaiah like basically had the busted foot and scored 43 points or something. Wow. Yeah. And Ralph, as you remember, the, the, the visitors locker room uh, was in one little hallway and the, the home locker room, Laker locker room was in another hallway, but they right. basically shared a shower. They, the, the easy way to get to one locker room to the other was to go through sort of this mutual shower mm. that they shared, right? Which was weird, but that's just the way it was, it was made. I mean, they had their own shower areas, okay. but you could go through like the convoluted way to, through the shower area. Oh, wow. So part of my job, you know, was, was to get obviously the team celebrating in the, in the victor's locker room. And then I had to get to the Laker locker room to get some dejection photo of some mm -hmm. kind. You know, it just it told the story. I had to had to do it. And there was no way to get even through the locker room to the hallway to the Laker locker room. Yep. So I knew because I'd been there a million times. I knew you could get through the shower from point A to point B. So I'm going through the shower and the corner of my eye, I get to the Laker side and there's Coop and Magic fully dressed in their uniforms water running in the shower. I think Coop was like down similar to when you guys beat him in 86, you know, his hands on his heads, mm -hmm. magic's just the water's running. It was like the most poignant photojournalistic moment, like of all time in my career. Yeah. Didn't even think about picking up the camera. Wow. I'm like, wow, that is a private moment. And I am not even thinking about it. <laughs> it just kept going. But wow. in retrospect, I did think about it when I went home that night. Mm -hmm. And I'm very happy I didn't take that picture because that probably would have ruined everything, quite frankly. Wow. And that's not my job. Mm -hmm. It's really not. So. Wow. Know. Well, thank you for that honest that's answer. A that's a lot of respect. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a, I mean, you know, between that and going to the locker room and, you know, females in the locker room, you know, pictures and interviews and guys with the robes on or, you know, no shirt yeah. on, whatever. It's, it had evolved, and there's a lot of pictures that could have been taken that would have been kind of bad for the NBA and guys' career. So, yeah, a lot of respect over the years for that, and that's, that's. I mean, that means a lot to the league, and that's mm -hmm. that's why you who you are because mm -hmm. they can trust you to get the best pictures and the best yeah. stories. And you know, I think it goes back to your dad teaching you how to, you know, take pictures and give you the camera and get that respect because I don't think mm -hmm. there's many guys like that. I mean. Back in the day, there was a good reporter and a bad reporter, you know, and there was a <laughs> right. photographer. And that's all you had. So I had, yeah. I had respect for both reporters, 
Mm-hmm. But I knew what to say to each one of them. As a player, <laughs> you, you you gain that knowledge and you say, right. well, you can tell a story about you know, me and Akeem. He was on his show and it's telling him about a story about me and Akeem mm-hmm. taking a picture. And he would walk up to our equipment you know, um, man and say, well, I need these two two jerseys. Tell yeah. that story for a second because that's mutual respect as well. Yeah, that was look. I, I I had a lot of moxie back in the day, you know, and there, and there weren't there weren't all these levels that you had to go no. through. Mm-hmm. And what was your equipment guy's name again? We call him Dark Horse. Yeah, right. So yeah. I, I I knew him. I kind of we all knew each other, and you know there weren't very many other people around except the players, the coaches, and a trainer. And the trainer was everybody: the equipment manager, the the traveling secretary, you know, <laughs> probably ordered out for food, whatever, you know. Um, so you guys are playing, the Rockets are playing at the sports arena. And I just got into my head. I got to get a portrait of Ralph and Akeem together. I just have to get it. Um, it was really important to me in those days, not only to shoot the game action, but to try to get a portrait in some way. Even it, like when I was on the road, I would like beg a guy like Carmelo, can I just get a picture of you with like a mountain behind you or something, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and usually they would, we're cool with it, you know? So it's a it's shoot around and the day of the game and I went there early earlier than I normally would because I knew the team was going to be shooting around and uh, I asked the equipment guy can I borrow Ralph's and Akeem's jersey for a minute <laughs> and he's like why and I said why well, I'm going to ask him to do this portrait and he goes you're going to bring it back right I said yeah so I I borrowed the jerseys and you guys were in your your um, you know your practice gear. And I approached both of you. I don't remember which one was first. So I want to do this portrait really quick. It was probably 12 feet from the court to the loading dock. You know, it's a very small area. I have this little, this wall picked out. And would you guys do it? And both of you guys said, yeah, sure. And I had the jerseys. You just took off your practice gear, put the jerseys on. If you look at the photo, you're wearing actual um, like sweatpants, you know, that you were practicing in. And you guys came out. It was all set up to very small lights and the whole thing shot maybe three or four frames. And it's one of my favorite portraits I ever took. <laughs> so thank you for crazy. that, Ralph. Wow. Yeah, no, this is, you're welcome. It's crazy to hear that because it, you can't get, you can't get the jersey today. I mean, right. Unless you, unless you, Andy, you probably can get it, but somebody like that. <laughs> no, no, right I, I, I cannot. I, I, I yeah. can tell you stories where I, <laughs> I've had to sign like a kid away, you know, to borrow a jersey to do a photo shoot. So yeah, yeah, those days are gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then probably in those days, Ralph, you guys probably, I don't know if you even carried an extra jersey per player. Maybe you just had two jerseys that you would no, we, on the road. No, we had to carry our own. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, we had to carry our own jersey on the, on, the, on the plane. The trainer or the equipment manager, we carried our own. If we didn't have our jersey and a pair of shoes on the plane that morning, yeah. we'd get fined. That is just insane. That's that so is crazy. insane. I think it all changed when Michael Jordan's jersey was stolen and he had to wear number 12 for that one game. They, I, think I they, was there. You were there, there at that game too? I was too? there. You were I at every there. game. That's no, unbelievable. I was there. So, so here's Did you the steal the jersey, Andy? Do you want to confess? No. Is <laughs> Where's it at? Yeah. No, this is the story. So I, you know, I was chasing Michael, you know, trying to shoot him in all different arenas. Mm-hmm. The NBA says, yeah, go down to Orlando, you know, get yeah. him in Orlando, get him in Miami. They do an East Coast swing. And, it, you know, it's very exciting to get Michael, of course, on the road. Anytime you can shoot Michael. Because I didn't get to see him that much because, mm-hmm. you know, Eastern Conference. So <clears throat> I go to Orlando and um, word comes out, like right before the team comes out, somebody had stole Michael's jersey. <laughs> and they, weren't, they didn't carry a second jersey for oh, some well, unknown yeah. reason. 
And he comes out for warmups in this number 12 and my heart just sank. I'm like, I made this whole trip and I set these cameras up and here I'm gonna shoot him in this number 12 and no one's ever gonna use these pictures. And it, like, I was crest, I was literally crestfallen. Wow. And no, like he could do the greatest dunk of all time in this game and no one will ever use it because he's wearing <laughs> some 12. generic, didn't even have his name on the back. Right, nothing know, on the back. Yeah. So lo and behold, that has become like this crazy iconic moment in the history of all sports. Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan wearing this number 12. And those photos have taken on a, like a life of their own over the years. So yeah. thank God I didn't, I didn't let it affect my work that night. I actually went and, and approached the game the same way as I always would and got some pretty decent photos. But the photos of him just standing there with the blank number 12 on, you know, yeah. <laughs> who knew in the moment that that would be such an important moment Iconic. in my history? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you have witnessed so much history from little fun tidbits like that to obviously <laughs> all of these NBA Finals moments, as we alluded. Uh, you've got to be a fan too. Do you know the most excited you've ever been? I mean, yes, you're there working, but the most excited you've ever been at a game, you've witnessed so much history. I mean, think of yeah. NBA history. You were there for it. Is there a moment or two that stands out? Well, I, I have to say, honestly, I know we're very NBA heavy here, but yeah. the, the greatest moment as a fan for me was when Kirk Gibson hit that home run in 88. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was working for the Dodgers not particularly supposed to be neutral, but I am, you know, uh, you know, trying to do my job. But when, sure. when that ball cleared the fence and that stadium felt like it was going to break in half and it didn't stop. I mean, it was the loudest I had ever heard a stadium or an arena to this day in my life. Wow. I mean, you couldn't help but be excited, but I, yeah. I, you know, that lasted a millisecond <laughs> Honestly, right, 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 right. because I knew that I had my job to do. And if you ever see the video, the video is hilarious because mm -hmm the video that was shot from high above like the third baseline and you see Tommy Lasorda running out, you know, the belly is <laughs> and, and all the players are rushing to home plate. Who's the first guy out there? It was me. <laughs> I, I was shooting next to the Dodger dugout and jumped over the railing and just ran out there. And I was the first guy when Kirk hit the home plate and Oral Hershiser was right there and he high fived Oral. I got that photo, wow. and that ended up to be the cover of the sporting news that week. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's incredible. Just so many moments that you had a front row seat towards. That. And how about the, you mentioned the atmosphere in that, mm -hmm. in that stadium that night. Is, yeah. there a, a, is that the best atmosphere you've ever been in for a, a game uh, in a stadium or an arena? Uh, is there a, one that stands out the most? Well, you know, if you remember that game, the Dodgers were kind of dead in the water. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, Kirk came up and did this heroic thing, but didn't look like they were going to win that game. In fact, the famous story of how many uh, red taillights do you see from the press box of, mm -hmm. of fans leaving, famously leaving, leaving yeah. LA, you know, LA fans leaving early. But I've been in some incredible uh, atmospheres. Just I'm sure Ralph has in his career in college and pros that. You know, Boston Garden, for example, 84, um, I remember the parquet floor literally shaking. The panels of the parquet floor were doing this. 
because it, it was so thunderous in there. Wow. And plus, you know, it was like 95 degrees and they had no, no air conditioning and you know, people <laughs> were sweating like oh, crazy. Yeah. It, was, it, it was so hot in Boston Garden. Ralph, you remember this, that Pat Riley, God bless him, would not take his suit coat off, right? And he is dripping sweat like the tail of his suit jacket is literally like, like there's a faucet and like from broadcast news, you know, remember yeah. that? with Albert Brooks, but the hair is perfect. The hair, not a hair out of place. But I remember one of those games and the game started like at 930 at night. Everybody was sloshed, you know, it's like, it's just, and I remember going over, I was so dehydrated at halftime. I lifted up the Gatorade thing and I put my head in it because it was still, I don't even know how they still had ice in there, but they did. And then I told the guy, you better change this (laughs) because I just stuck my head in there. (laughs) But there's been some amazing, um, you know, L.A. fans don't get enough credit. I mean, some of those Laker fans at the forum, but also um, at Staples Center, you know, the Mm -hmm. Shaq and Kobe era, just amazing. Um, the fans in Golden State, the fans in Utah. I mean, Utah, those fans are literally like on top of you. And and it's loud as hell. The summit was crazy, Ralph. I mean, the summit was <laughs> some of the loudest and, and most boisterous crowds back in the day. So, yeah, I've had the good fortune of being um, in some amazing atmospheres, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But Utah was the worst for me. Utah with the fans that, you know, it got – Supposedly Mormon people out there, but Larry yeah. Miller, the owner, yeah. we would throw water on him because he would be <laughs> so hard on us. He sat right beside the bench. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, before they let owners do all that, but he did it the first and we would throw water on him just for the fun of it. Yeah. Crazy, but Utah was the worst. Yeah. This I don't was know. The worst place. I don't know. What would you think, Rob? Utah or Philly? Because Philly fans are ruthless. I mean, they mm-hmm. are ruthless my my kid one of my daughters lives in philly now and she's become kind of a philly fan of the different sports teams mm-hmm. but that's a whole other vibe in philly <laughs> you know? yeah, it's a different vibe i mean the spectrum and julius and mo there's no plan in it but i mean when you go to philly you see how small the spectrum is compared to their new new facility yeah players with people on top of it and and they would boot their own own team and, yeah. and go about the arena, not okay. only the other polling team, but they'd be hardcore on you all day long. But I love to play there. I love to yeah. play in Philly. It was fun I, to play. I bet. Yeah, I grew up a hockey fan, a Rangers fan. So those were crazy ass crowds, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, when the Bruins would come in, or or they, we hated the Flyers like with a passion. And, you know, hockey crowds are they're a different breed. Different breed. <laughs> Yeah, for but, sure. Uh, well, fighting is a part of the sport, so it's yes, you know it's just yes. ingrained within it that whole rowdy energy and atmosphere. Right. Uh, well, 2020 this year has been a trying year for everyone, but mm-hmm. uh, you know I especially thought of you early in the year because of uh, Kobe Bryant. You mm-hmm. are someone who got to know Kobe. Uh, very closely as as a man, as a person, but you documented his entire career from his rookie season, taking his rookie headshot back in October of 1996, mm-hmm. all the way through collaborating with him after he retired on on an incredible book that I have here with me, The Mamba Mentality. Uh, and I definitely recommend uh, everyone picking up a copy. It is amazing words from Kobe on his entire career, reflecting on it, how he played coupled with your incredible photographs that that captured that and i know that you 
you really watched him grow up and evolve as not just a basketball player, but as a person. And first, you know, how, how are you doing? Because, uh, you know, the, a lot of things have taken over the news and our attention in 2020 mm-hmm. from COVID-19 to social justice calls for it. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's not that it's taken away from what happened to Kobe, but we've sort of had to, we've been forced to, to move on. Um, mm. First, how, how are you doing? Well, I appreciate you asking, Jason, and I, I have to actually back up a little bit mm-hmm. in 2020 because we lost our great yeah. commissioner, David Stern, a couple mm-hmm. of days into yeah. the new year. And that set the table for, God willing, this is the worst year any of us will ever have to go through. Yeah. And we, you know, we were all, all of us who knew him and worked for him, we were all grieving from that, you know, and then three weeks later, this shock beyond shocks happens. Um, I was actually in this place right here where I am, where I got the news on that Sunday morning. Um, and how I'm doing is uh, honestly day to day, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Um, I'm so grateful that he and I had this, a, this relationship over the years, but that we had had that I was given the opportunity by him so generously by him to live in his world and document his journey, but that it culminated in this book, which um, was a gift from him to me, honestly. Um, And uh, to see that the book now is the thread is the, is the conduit, the connection between his legacy because everything in that book he wrote himself all in his own words um, between him and his fans, millions and millions of fans, and myself. I mean, I look at my book all the time. Right in front of me in the screen is 15 Kobe pictures from the book, um, mm-hmm. you know, pinned to my wall. And I walk by them and I talk to him once in a while. And uh, <laughs> uh, I have great memories, um, but it was, uh, and for him to, to perish with his daughter, you know, I have three daughters. Um, and I'm very close uh, to them. And I, of course, can't even imagine what Vanessa and, and the other girls are going through. Um, it's it's just really hard. Uh, it's what, almost eight months later, and it, it feels like it was yesterday. And it also mm-hmm. feels like it it's so surreal. Yeah. And I've been working yeah. lately with with a gentleman named Mike Asner, who has started a, uh, a project called KobeMural.com. And I'm mentioning it only because mm-hmm. it's such a important um, connection of all the mural artists all over the world who have created beautiful murals of Kobe and Gigi. And he's probably tracked 600 or so murals, uh, not just in the US, not just in LA, but all over the world. Every day people are sending in photos, some of them in private homes, you know, Mm. some of them in public places. And we start to interview some of these uh, artists just because I want to know their story because some of them, you know, using photos of mine. Yeah. And it's all a catharsis for them. It's all the way for them to express their grief, um, for them to get their love for Kobe out there and to share it with the world. And I feel the same way about our book. Yeah. And uh, um, it's very humbling that um, that we did create this book. And, and I'm just so thankful to him and everyone around him who really encouraged that we do the book. Because he didn't have to do this book. No. I mean, he retired. He had a million things going on. Um, but he knew the book was important to me. He also knew that he had a story to tell Mm -hmm. and he didn't want it to be 
you know, told by. <laughs> he wanted to right. be, it be told by him, mm-hmm. quite frankly. And none of us who are around him all the time really knew what made him tick. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, he kept things close to the vest. He, we never really got the whole Mamba persona, mm-hmm. like, and what his de- his personal definition of what Mamba mentality meant. So he lays that out in the book. And also it's a teaching tool, the book, because mm-hmm. the very first part of the book is about process. And the first photo in that section is, is, is a young Kobe playing defense against Michael Jordan, probably in his rookie year. Mm-hmm. And his caption that he wrote for this photo was everything I'm doing in this photo is wrong. <laughs> now this is, this is his own book, you know, who, who does that, but right. he wanted people to see like what he learned from yeah. actually studying my photo. Now I didn't know that. I didn't sure. know that he would break down my photos and other people's photos and video to that degree, like dissect it like a surgeon and really see the nuances, you know, where his hips were, where his arm was, where he's looking, you know, how his feet are positioned. And he breaks, breaks it down time after time after time to the point where we gave him a Sharpie. Like I made prints, uh-huh. eight by 10 prints. And I gave him a Sharpie and he would just write on the picture. And we wow. published the photo in the book that way of him actually writing what's going on in that photo, in that moment. Wow. Well, it's an amazing legacy that lives on. So Orange County uh, this month is going to do the Kobe day. Kobe, mm-hmm. I mean, like yeah. he's going to do some Kobe week, whatever. I mean, so he's real powerful. So one, are you involved in that? And first, I want to know, because I knew sometimes, you know, certain things, dates and time, you know where you were. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Kobe, I mean, I was in a office supply store and the guy says, Oh, you hear about Kobe? He died. I'm like, shut up. You know, he's stupid. You know, that's just yeah. not right. You know, and then yeah. it's in the helicopter. You go and I rush home to look at the news. Where were you at? Because I'm sure you didn't believe it like most people didn't either. Well, Ralph, I'm lo- I'm old enough to remember, you know, where I was when JFK was shot. Right. I was five yeah. years old. I was with my mom in, in a store on Avenue M in Brooklyn. <laughs> I mean, I, wow, honestly, wow. I remember where I was. Bobby Kennedy was shot. MLK, you know, 9-11. Yeah, yeah. Um, even John Lennon, I remember where I was. I was actually in New York that, yep. at that moment when he was killed. So I was in here in my office. My 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 cubicle, my part of the office where I work is on the other side of the wall in front of me. And I had just taken my daughter, my youngest, my 12-year-old to uh, Hebrew school on Sunday morning. And my routine on Sunday mornings, if I didn't have a, a noon game and I was in town, is that I would take her to Hebrew school, which was you know about 15 miles away. And that would give my wife Sunday morning just to chill and read the paper and just have her personal time. And then I would leave my daughter and come to my office, which was a 15 minute drive, spend a couple hours in my office, just kind of clearing my head, catching up on stuff, doing a little house cleaning, whatever. And I'm in my office and I got my Springsteen music blasting like I always do. And I have my phone. I just, you know, I knew that I had to leave at 1130 to go pick her up. And it's about a quarter to 10, I think, or almost 10 o'clock. And my phone is like jumping off of the the table, off of this desk. And finally, I picked it up. I'm like, five or 10 people had texted me. Like, is it true? Is it true? And like, I don't know what that means. And then somebody says, is it true about Kobe? And just as I'm reading that, my phone rings. And it's my boss, Joe Amati from NBA Photos, who's my good friend. 
and he's distraught. And he said, you have a TV there? And I said, yeah. And he said, turn on the news. And I'm watching this as he's watching it in New Jersey, watching it together. And at that point, you know, TMZ was the only outlet to report it. So not mm-hmm. the most right. reputable, you know, <laughs> sure, right. but by maybe five minutes into it, you could see that the sheriff's department was out there and it was confirmed. Um, yeah. Now, at that point, we we knew that that Kobe had perished, but we had no idea that Gigi was even with him. Mm-hmm. And so I'm watching right. that and I know I got to go pick up my kid. So I get in the car, I drive to Glendale to pick her up. And I was praying that she didn't know about it. But of course, by the time I get there, all the kids had known about it and um, pick her up and we're driving home, get on the freeway and listening to it, of course, on the news. And that's when they announced that Gigi was with him and I just had to pull over. I had to on the freeway, just pulled over. And it was, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was absolutely surreal and horrible. Um, I'm kind of thankful actually that I had the opportunity to do a couple of interviews right away and that next morning. Cause I, I you know, I, I don't know how I could have dealt with it. Otherwise sure. I just, I just had to be sort of on point and be able to uh, relay my relationship with him and, and all that. And by the time I got to Staples that next morning, of course, you know, thousands of people were there in the plaza and it was, they really had nowhere else to go. Um, it was, it was such a tragic tragic morning i'll never forget it yeah yeah no one ever will it it affected the whole world and really the outpouring of of love for for kobe that that came in the days and weeks and months that followed Mm -hmm. was overwhelming and uh, you were the one of the first people that i that i thought of when i i heard of that news because of i knew of your relationship and you know just being so close to him for so many Mm -hmm. years and uh, it, it is nice to hear you say that that you are grateful for that time, mm-hmm. and you look back at it, and you have this book, which is such a, kind of tying a, a, a bow on on it all, on on his incredible career and your work intertwined mm-hmm. with his is uh, a legacy that will live on. That's an amazing thing about the work that you do and about photography is that these photos live forever, and they capture mm-hmm. these moments in time. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jason. I remember you were one of the first people that reached out by text. So thank you for that. Of course. Of course. Well, to a little bit of a a lighter topic, you are packing right now because you're about to head out to Orlando, to the bubble. Uh, Yeah. The world looks a lot different than uh, it did just six months ago uh, when, when that tragically happened. And the NBA has done an incredible job of adjusting so that we can have basketball back and that the season will have a resolution. Um, did you have any hesitations about going to the bubble in Orlando when you first heard that this was coming together? Um, quite frankly, no. I, uh, I was ready to go whenever they wanted me to go, quite yeah. frankly. I, I, I needed to get back to work. I missed the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I heard what the what the protocols that were put in place and the safety measures, um, I never doubted it for a second. The NBA gave me the choice. It, I guess they sort of divided it up with with our photo crew in like three different um, segments. And they gave me the choice when which segment I wanted to go. And I, 
you know, I'm, I always want to be there for money time, as Magic used to call it. <laughs> so I, I chose the third segment, which is basically the end of the second round, conference finals and finals. Great. So myself and my cohort, Nat Butler from New York, we're going to make it down there. Honestly, the only thing that concerns me, guys, is the actual getting on the airplane, mm-hmm. on a commercial flight, getting off the airplane and getting to the facility, getting to the bubble. Sure. So my wife, God bless her, you know, she was just about to order a hazmat suit. On, on I had to stop her from doing it. Yeah. No, she was going to get me a hazmat suit, you know, with the booties and the whole, I mean, I can't go on an airplane like that. So, you know, we compromised, you know, yeah. I have gloves. I got the, the, the ultra N90 mask, whatever. Uh-huh. I got the visor. It's going to be quite, quite the selfie. I'm going to take on that plane. Yes. <laughs> We want that picture. We want that yeah. picture. So. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> well, you'll obviously be photographing the games and all the action as the, the playoffs uh, get underway and then uh, another NBA Finals. Are you going in with a game plan of anything that you – a goal, something you want to shoot or capture outside of basketball in this unique bubble experience? You know, that's a great question, and the answer to that is I don't know. I mean, it's going to be such a unique experience. I mean, the thing that comes to mind, quite frankly, is that some team is going to win the NBA championship on a court with no fans. (laughs) I mean, by that point, there'll be family members there, but they'll be in a different area. They're not going to be like – nobody's going to be rushing the court. There's not going to be any – it's going to be so bizarre. I mean, yeah. it, you know, I saw a Kamala Harris's press conference with Joe Biden, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we think about all the, the great campaign moments of the past where, you know, the VP has been selected and the moments where they, you know, hold up each other's hands and there's fans and, and supporters. It, yeah. it was like in that empty gym. So I think it's going to be kind of like that, quite frankly. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. going to be wearing masks. Um I don't know what the locker room situation is going to be like. I assume that they'll sneak some bubbly into the bubble, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. which they should. They yeah. should. But um, the uniqueness of the situation um, as a photographer poses a, a challenge, but it's a fun challenge. So I, I, I'll have to get back to you on that once I get okay. down there, yes. because we are limited as to where we can shoot from. Mm. You know, if you're watching the games, you know, you don't see photographers or video guys on the court. Mm. Right. So we're off the court. Um, that's a different kind of shooting for us. You know, we're not as involved in the game as we are when we're right under the basket. Yeah. Um, so who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm excited. I, yeah. I think it's an open book, you know, this far into my career to have this to remember. Mm-hmm. You know, Doc Rivers said this shouldn't be an asterisk season, whoever wins the championship. It yeah, should be a gold star you. season. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you that when you put an asterisk, I mean, LeBron and, and, and Anthony David, they win, would there be an asterisk beside their name? Championship in the bubble. I mean, it's it's got to be different for that, right? But it shouldn't be. I don't think it should be either. Yeah, I think the amount that these guys have sacrificed. Yes. I mean, keep in mind, if you get to the finals – one, those two teams have been there for over three and a half months. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean, that is a lot. That's like being on a submarine or something. <laughs> I mean, forget about it. So definitely is not an asterisk in any way, shape or form. You know, it's not people talked about the 99 championship being an asterisk season. Um, right. Spurs won. I don't know about that, but Phil Jackson had his own view on that because um, it was a shortened season. But mm-hmm. this this is a completely different scenario. Oh, yeah. And again, I see it as a heroic 
season rather than something that should be shortchanged. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's unlike something that's ever happened in the history of sports before. And of course, mm. you will be there to document it just as you have for the past 38 years in your incredible career. <laughs> uh, and now your career has transitioned also to podcast host. You have your own podcast, Legends of Sport, where you've done over 75 episodes. Some of the biggest names, true legends in sports, including our own Ralph Sampson, uh, Jerry right. West, Magic Johnson, Kobe, and David Stern, who you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. What have you learned the most uh, about yourself from starting a podcast? That's a great question, Jay. I, I've learned <laughs> that... Um, that I really like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that I really, I really enjoy it. I took to it pretty quickly. Um, the, the genesis of this was that I, I started doing a TV show on the Lakers uh, channel on their um, network, <clears throat> where I would sit with a Laker personality, like you know whoever player, Jeannie Buss, whoever, mm. and have a conversation about their career through my photos. And I had yeah. never done that before. Yeah. I had a tremendous yeah. producer. And she saw how nervous I was and it was being taped. So it wasn't like it was live. Sure. And she said, you know what, Andy, you know, all these people, you know, like, they're like friends. You imagine you're in your living room and there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's a camera there, but don't pay it. And that's how I, how I took to it quite honestly. And the reason why I love doing this podcast is because a, I'm trying to launch uh, this legends of sport platform, which mm-hmm. I've been trying to do with some partners for about five, six years. And we just partnered with the LA Times. So now we're distributed and, and co-produced by the LA Times, which is wonderful. But I love to hear people's stories. Like when we do research, my researcher and producer Veronica and I, and when we're doing research about Ralph, for example, you know, we find out stuff that yeah. like I never would have known unless I'm like sitting around with Ralph, you know, having a beer somewhere, you know. Yeah. And, and, and I've known Ralph my whole career. But there's stuff that we uncovered that's so interesting to me, you know, and everybody has this moment in their life, all of us on this on this call right now, um, where that was a pivotal moment that either a mentor influenced them or it was a change in direction for them. You know, Kirk Gibson talks about how on my podcast, how he was he was an all-American football player at Michigan State. He was destined for an NFL career. Except his, he was also a pretty decent baseball player, um, and his football coach said, "You know what? I think you should play baseball. You like have a longer career. You probably physically will last longer, and that changed his life. You know, we all know what happened to Kirk Gibson. Um, so everybody has that story. I mean, somebody like Peter Guber, you know, mm-hmm. icon of icons, you know, entrepreneur, owner, um, incredible person in the entertainment business." You know, this is a guy who who was a, a Boston Red Sox fan growing up who used to stand in Yawkey York, Way trying to catch a home run ball because he couldn't afford to get a bleacher ticket. Right? No. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I mean, so everybody has that story. And I, I love to uncover that. I love to talk about that. I think the audience loves that. And then when you get to talk to somebody like Jerry West, you know, a legend upon legend mm-hmm. and take a deep dive into his into his story, which he was very eloquent and open about his mental health issues and struggles um, in his own book. Uh, I, I feel really fortunate that I had this relationship with him that I that he trusted to talk to me about that stuff, quite frankly, yeah. because Jerry, you know, is not the most vocal person when it comes to his, <laughs> his own that. self, you know. Sure. So it's super fun. Right now we're in the middle of a 16 week block 
with the LA Times called Restarting the Clock. Mm -hmm. And each week is a different episode that's themed to what's going on in the WNBA bubble and the NBA bubble. Mm -hmm. Um, So playoffs are about to start, for example. So Ralph is going to be on next week to talk about legendary upsets, which, Mm -hmm. of course, he was one of the most legendary upsets in NBA history, part of that in 86 when Houston beat, beat the defending champion Lakers. And then we'll, as we get into the playoffs, and we'll talk about legendary rivalries. So we take our legends slant, you know, our, our mission to get the word out about legendary athletes, moments, teams, and bring it to current events. So not particularly interested in last night's score or who scored the most points. Right. But if it relates to somebody else having done that in the past and it's a great conversation for us well i appreciate it. the show was good i enjoyed it and, and look forward you. to hearing it live and yeah and, uh, it was good well thank you Ralph. thanks for being a guest and thanks for having me we'll no treat thank this you as good. thank you for your time well andy you've you've always been a fantastic storyteller uh your photos tell incredible stories and now you're doing the same with the, your podcast as well. A final question that we like to ask yeah. all of our guests we'll leave you on is you sort of alluded to it, an opportunity to pay homage to someone who was key and instrumental to you in your career, in your success, somewhere in your life. Maybe someone who, who we might n- have never heard of, or maybe it's someone who really took you under their wing. Is there someone you want to pay homage to? Well, I got to shout out to my old man, my dad first. You know, I lost my dad 16 years ago this week, and and he got me into sports uh, very early. Um, took me to games, Mets games, Ranger games, played street hockey with me, and you know, um, I always knew how important sports was to our family because we were all Brooklyn Dodger. Well, they were all Brooklyn Dodger fans. I was born the year the Dodgers moved out of Brooklyn, which wasn't really as important to them as the Dodgers moving out of Brooklyn, you know, (laughs) Oh yeah. He happened to be bored that same year. Um, But you know, my dad um, and I bonded over sports and uh, that continued when I became a sports photographer. I think subconsciously I wanted to stay, keep having that relationship with him through sports. So I would bring him to big boxing matches that I would do in Vegas or Atlantic city, or I'd take him to NBA finals games. And, and most prominently I took him to the whole dream team experience in Monte Carlo and Barcelona. Hmm. So that kind of continued. If, if he hadn't bought me that first camera, then, you know, yeah. maybe I'd be selling insurance now or something. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, I'm glad he got you that camera. And uh, so are millions of people around the world who have seen and experienced and loved your iconic photos over the years, capturing all these amazing moments. Andy, thank, oh, thank you so you. much for your time and for Absolutely. joining us here on Center Court. Well, it was a pleasure, guys. So great. Thank you. Be safe. Yeah, be safe in Orlando and tell your wife to give you that hazmat suit. <laughs> There's still time. I think we can get it on Amazon Prime. <laughs> There's time. We got to get to her. We got to get you that suit. All right. We'll look for that selfie. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Great seeing you. Well, Ralph, that was an amazing interview with Andy Bernstein. He has uh, used a camera lens and now a microphone with his podcast to be the ticket to so many incredible moments people, experiences, and uh, it was great for him to share those with us here today. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed at the parts in his father gave him the camera at an early age. He's got a, his passion from that. 
that'd be the start. Everybody starts somehow in life in their passion. So he, he it, from that to a dorm room, right? That he put up pictures over his bed and let them hang and drip dry. And I mean, uh, no, who does that? It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then to his ability to be almost like a player, mm-hmm. you know, and do his pregame meals, go to the arena at 12 o'clock, be there for six hours till the game starts. And then when the game's over and take down the equipment, it's a long day for, for anybody, but to have that mentality and focus to really go into the arena, like nobody bothered me because I'm in my zone. That's special. That's a special person. So yeah. I'm interested in someone like that, that has almost like the Kobe mama mentality comes to photography. That's why he's so successful. So love the interview. Love him to death. Great God pictures. I, I'm, I'm going to get that picture though, that me and the team were together. Uh, I'm going to get him back, get that picture. Cause I like to see that picture as well, but I love the interview and uh, everybody that's listening out there. It, uh, wow. What, what else can you ask for? Yeah. Well, thank you all for listening. That was a great interview with Andy. And we have some more great guests coming up soon. We're going to be talking to some people inside the NBA bubble and more uh, coming up. So thank you again for listening. Make sure to like us, uh, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a review. It means a lot to us, and and it helps us as we uh, work our way up the charts in the podcast world. Stay tuned for more Center Court. Follow us on our social media channels. Jay Z Fish. You got it. Look at look at and Ralph Sampson fifty and Center Court fifty on Instagram. But uh, more to come. Stay tuned. That's right. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, everybody, and we will see you next week for more Center Court. Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miro Board. Today we talk retrospectives with Agile Coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You've spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or Miro Board? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online at the same time. Correct. Next. You need the team to act on feedback fast, so you turn all those retro notes into JIRA tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.